Oh, hello. Hello, everyone. Well, welcome to uh, London and the uh, London School of Economics. Uh, my name is Gary Simpson. I'm the uh, professor of international law here at the LSE, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you to the event entitled The State of Emergency as the Rule and Not the Exception, Crisis Conditions and Exploitative Lawmaking During COVID-19 and Beyond. So we have three fabulous speakers um, tonight. This is really uh, Gallatin NYU at LSE because they all either are at the Gallatin School at NYU or have been affiliated in the past at that school. So in order of uh, speakers, uh, we'll, we'll begin in fact with Carly Krakow uh, who will describe the concept of the evening and the subject. She's a PhD candidate here in international law and the Rosalind Higgins scholar in the Department of Law. Her writing research and activism focuses on international law, environmental justice and human rights in contexts of statelessness and displacement. And she'll speak briefly about, as I say, the overall concept and then come in as the third speaker um, after we hear from um, Sinan Antun, who's an associate professor at NYUT, NYU Gallatin and a novelist, poet, scholar, and translator. He's published two collections of poetry and four novels. His op-eds have appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Nation. And his latest novel, The Book of Collateral Damage, was published by Yale University Press in 2019. Uh, Vasuki Nasia is a professor of human rights and international law at NYU Gallatin. Her recent publications include the co-edited book, Bandung, Global History and International Law, which I very much recommend. And her current project has the tantalizing title, Reading the Ruins, Slavery, Colonialism and International Law, and focuses on international legal history, including reparations uh, claims. Forthcoming publications include International Conflict Feminism under, conf under contract with UPenn Press. So um, with all that taken care of, uh, I'm going to hand over to Carly, then we'll hear the three from the three speakers and then we'll, uh, we'll open it up for a discussion. Carly, over to you. Hi everyone, thank you so much, Gary, for the wonderful introduction to our event and for kicking things off uh, this afternoon or evening, depending on where in the world everyone is located. Uh, so delighted to be here with this incredible group of speakers to talk about such an interesting and timely subject. And as Gary said, before jumping to that, I just have to um, first briefly thank some of the people who were so supportive in making this conversation possible. I promise this is not an award speech and won't take long, so hopefully no music cuts into my remarks, but uh, there are a few people who really put in a lot of time to support us. Uh, we're very grateful to the LSE Law Department for hosting, especially the phenomenal Alex Green for helping to coordinate everything from beginning to end. The Central LSE Events team, especially Matt Ward and all those running the Shaping the Post-COVID World Event Series. And we're fortunate to have the support of Jadalia and the Arab Studies Institute, especially Bassam Haddad, as well as MK Smith, Kylie Broderick, and John Callis, who have been so great supporting us and getting the word out to increase engagement. It's really deeply appreciated. As Gary said, um, we have uh, two wonderful speakers from the NYU Gallatin School, and I uh, was formerly a student there. So uh, thank you to the school as well, and especially Aaron Sedolia. 
um, and our Dean, Suzanne Wolford, and of course, uh, to Gary for graciously chairing and thank you in advance, Gary, for sharing some of your signature thought-provoking reflections and to Sanan and Vasuki for being here today. Uh, truly an honor and cannot wait to hear your remarks. Uh, so with that said, before I just turn it over to Sanan as our first speaker, I'll briefly introduce the origin of some of the questions we'll be addressing. So the title, as Gary shared, is The State of Emergency is the Rule and Not the Exception. And this comes out of the essay, Theses on the Philosophy of History, or on the Concept of History, as it is sometimes translated by the philosopher Walter Benjamin. And in that essay, uh, Benjamin wrote, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. We must attain to a conception of history that is in keeping with this insight. Then we shall clearly realize that it is our task to bring about a real state of emergency, and this will improve our position in the struggle against fascism. So Benjamin, who was writing in the context of resistance to fascism in the midst of World War II, offers provocations that I think are, are very relevant to a conversation regarding the pattern of authoritarian regimes exploiting crisis to push forward unjust and marginalizing reforms. And as the event description outlined, state responses to the COVID-19 pandemic and police responses to the protests that have followed the police killing of George Floyd in the US and other issues have all sparked new concerns in recent times about governmental weaponization of authentic crisis conditions for nefarious purposes. And today we'll be talking through the exploitation of crisis as an essential ingredient in the production of laws and policies that repress vulnerable populations, violate international human rights, and fuel the power of totalitarian and corrupt regimes on local and international scales. And when I was wondering about how to best think through um, the exploitation of crisis and how this can be understood from multidisciplinary perspectives, attentive to law and human rights and history, theory, and justice, uh, I couldn't think of better experts than uh, the people here to contribute to this conversation. Uh, I've learned so much from the three of you already and really looking forward to, to learning more today. And lastly, I'll speak more a bit later about how Benjamin's work shapes our understanding of environmental injustice and environmental racism, especially this year during the pandemic. Um, lastly, just um, some reminders, if you are on Twitter and wanna share the event, you can use the hashtag, um, hashtag LSE COVID-19. And um, as was mentioned, you can submit questions. We're really looking forward to hearing from you using the Q&A chat feature uh, at the bottom of the screen. So with all that framing to guide us, um, thank you. And Sanan, I will hand it over to you. Thank you so much, Carly, uh, for organizing this event. Uh, I'm really honored and it's particularly wonderful to be with uh, you, Carly, and with Vasuki and nice to meet Gary. Uh, I, I should start with a disclaimer. I'm, I'm an alien in a way. I have nothing to do with law or international law. I'm a, a scholar of literature, but I've learned so much from Benjamin in how to think of history and of, of crises. So in the brief time allotted, I will address two intertwined moments that serve as prisms through which we might think of one of Benjamin's concepts in the thesis on the philosophy of history. A state of emergency was the pretext to bring these moments into being, and they are the Iraq war and the war on terror. And perhaps moments might seem ill-suited at first but think of these moments as permanent, ongoing explosions whose shards and shrapnel continue to wound, maim, and kill, and whose smoke fills many a screen, material and discursive, and continues to obfuscate. The war on terror is a permanent war that has long been exported, globalized, 
appropriated by various states and authoritarian regimes and creatively translocated and translated into various registers and existing structures of violence to perpetuate its aim, which paradoxically is none other than to unleash the terror of the state, any state against its enemies. It is the war that keeps on giving and creating and multiplying that which it claims and purports to end. As for the Iraq war, many may think it over, but I claim that for the vanquished, to use one of Benjamin's terms in this essay, it goes on in other forms and continues to metastasize. And we can get into this later. I don't mean this metaphorically only, especially in the case of Iraq. It has not ended, and I might add, it did not begin when it was often thought to have begun. And to further abuse the poetic license that I'm giving myself and to summon Benjamin's spirit, I will say that it started a few times, each time following an emergency declaration by a US president. And in saying this, my, what I've learned from Benjamin is how to unlearn the victor's version of history and think of history in a radical manner. One beginning of the war, the more well-known one was of course in March of 2003 with the invasion and occupation of Iraq and the shock and all bombing campaign. The Bush administration exploited the crisis of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and issued emergency declarations Still in effect, by the way, when I was uh, doing some reading for this event, there is even an emergency declaration from the Carter administration that is still in effect. And it acquired authorization to wage war. The goals of the war shifted from eliminating non-existent weapons of mass destruction and disarming the Iraqi regime to spreading democracy. But the removal of the Iraqi regime as an objective of the United States predates the 9-11 attacks and the Republican administration. In 1998, during the Clinton era, Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act and it was signed into law. And it was a bipartisan affair. It states that, quote, it should be the policy of the United States to seek to remove the Saddam Hussein regime from power in Iraq and to replace it with a democratic government. Unquote. So the 2003 invasion was supposed to disarm Iraq and rid the world of its weapons of mass destruction, but Iraq had already been disarmed once before and bombed. This takes us back to yet another emergency declaration and the weaponization of the crisis that took place during the first Bush era. The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 became a pretext for the United States to achieve a major geopolitical objective of permanent military presence in the Persian Gulf. Desert Shield became Desert Storm. On August 2nd, the day of the invasion, Executive Order 12722 was signed, was issued, quote, blocking Iraqi government property and prohibiting transactions with Iraq. And it remained in effect until July 29th of 2004. This of course would be the nucleus for the sanctions regime against Iraq which were imposed on August 6th, United Nations Security Council Resolution 661. The daily bombing campaign of the first Gulf War of 1991 started on January 17th and spread all over Iraq. The declared objective was to drive the occupying Iraqi army out of Kuwait, but the bombing destroyed Iraq's infrastructure, 
134 bridges, 18 of Iraq's 20 power generating plants, industrial complexes, oil refineries, sewage pumping stations, and telecommunications facilities. Post-war electricity was reduced to 4% of pre-war levels. The economic loss of the 43-day bombing campaign was estimated by UNICEF to be $232 billion. The American-led coalition dropped 88,000 tons of bombs. That is equivalent to seven Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. In January 29th, Bush, the father in the State of Union address said, what is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspiration of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. End of quote. The economic sanctions that were imposed to force Iraq out of Kuwait in 1990 were kept in place despite their cruelty and devastating effects on all facets of life and that they hurt the civilian population. Joy Gordon, American scholar, called the sanctions an invisible war and mentioned in her book, Invisible War, the United States and the Iraq Sanctions, how a UN envoy described the situation in 1991 as, quote, near apocalyptic. The best estimates of excess child mortality, the number of children under five who died during the sanctions, who would not have under Iraq's economy and policy before, is between 670,000 and 880,000. The sanctions, as I said, continued until 2003. The bombing of Iraqi civilians by United States and the United Kingdom continued throughout the 90s, using another pretext, that of the no-fly zone. So when Bush II took office, the United States was bombing Iraq an average of three times a week. In 1991, the U.S. spent $1 billion dropping bombs in Iraq. In 2000, that number went up to 1.4 billion. So in a way for Iraqi civilians, the state of emergency was not the exception, but the rule, at least since 1990. Be it the invasion of Kuwait or the 9-11 attacks, a crisis was weaponized to pursue policies aimed at achieving long-standing geopolitical objectives with devastating and genocidal effects on the civilian population in Iraq. Back in the U.S., the war on terror discourse and its Orwellian atmosphere allowed the U.S. government to justify a sweeping expansion of its powers and to push for new laws. The USA Patriot Act, which stood for, if you want anything Orwellian, uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism, was passed on October 26, 2001. By 96 to 1, only Senator Ross Feingold of Wisconsin was the naysayer. Many lawmakers had not even read, nor were they aware of the extent and scope of the powers they were authorizing. The Patriot Act, of course, disproportionately affected Arab Muslim and South Asian citizens and violated their constitutional rights and disrupted their lives. It was exploited to target anti-war groups and leftist activists and ignored the material threat of actual domestic terrorism and the activities of white supremacist groups and militias. I think in recent weeks and months, we've learned much more about that. In 2002 and 2003, the special registration program required male non-citizens above the age of 16 from 25 countries to register with the Department of Homeland Security as a measure of counterterrorism. 
24 of these countries had predominantly Muslim populations. I'm mentioning this to see to, of course, obviously, I hope see that a lot of the measures and the executive orders in the Trump era are only a continuation of what we had before. Out of the 80,000 who registered the Department of Homeland Security under the Special Registration Act between 2002 and 2003, 13,000 were put in, into deportation proceedings. Now, of course, um, none of this, all, the, the, all of these institutions uh, had the institutional memory of previous uh, acts and measures, whether it be the Red Scare or the internment of Japanese Americans during Second World War, which, quote, elevated this type of xenophobia into national policy. So I guess I will just end with a quote by uh, Mick Tossig, because I like the way how he reads Benjamin to say that history is a kind of siege in a way and terror as usual. But one quote which is useful for us now is how he says that the rhythm of numbing and shock that constitutes the apparent normality of the abnormal created by the state of emergency. So how to get out of this rhythm and to get out of this numbing. And I think I did it in 10 minutes. So thank you very much. You, you did. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that was the perfect opening for our, our webinar. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Vasuki now. Great. Um, thanks, uh, Kali. It's great to, for convening this panel and great to be in um, conversation with you, Sinan and Gary. Um, so at last count, I think, according to the the speech, um, the speech towards uh, estimator online. I think I'll, I'll I won't be as uh, as good as Sinan. I'll end up with twelve minutes, but uh, but we'll see. Um, first, however, as I was uh, rereading my notes just now, I thought I should begin with a confession regarding my discussion of the specific Benjamin except we are beginning with, as well as the thesis on the philosophy of history more generally. Often when I turn to Benjamin, my affective experience is sort of akin to some mystical meditative trance. So I'm afraid that what I will share with you today may read a bit too much in the genre of religious exegesis uh, by a devotee. Um, and those of you who know the text will hear the multiple citations back to it. Um, but no matter, I decided to embrace the idolatry and to um, hold on to every line and comma, leaning on each accent and word uh, in thinking about the current situation and how to th think about uh, resistance. So on that note, um, so let's turn to the word. The tradition of the oppressed, Benjamin says, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. Here, Benjamin is speaking about the rule and the exception as both diagnostic and prescription. The left um, or critical thinkers have always seen the world as a hall of mirrors. And when emergencies are declared with some sturm and drang, the left is adept at deconstructing the structural arrangements and root causes behind amplified crisis talk. We know to read the state of emergency as a code for the shock doctrine that will be employed by presidents and prime ministers, by the IMF and the World Bank, by university administrators and CEOs. It is a code for how declaring emergencies can translate into instituting austerity measures that cut needed programs and render some people dispensable and redundant. Emergencies are profiteering codes to bail out corporations and give administrators bonuses for guiding us through this crisis. 
and that for determining which color-coded alert level should trample on which civil liberties, for deciding which borders should be tucked, tucked, uh, shut ever more tightly, and for deciding who is a terror threat, and so on. Yet even the ever cynical left experienced the current moment as a state of emergency, as a catastrophe hurtling towards a precipice pushed by biblical plagues and death cults, wildfires and freak storms, food shortages and droughts, melting icebergs, um, and Yeats's rough beats, uh, beasts slouching towards Bethlehem. At the same time, even this catastrophe has patterns. Who is more vulnerable? Who is first off the precipice? Who is still posting profits in Wall Street? So the continuities and discontinuities between rule and exception speak to the schizophrenic experience of the state of emergency in the current moment. On the one hand, it's a moment that seems exceptional. And on the other hand, it's a moment that seems to distribute winnings and losses in ways that have rule book predictability. It's a moment that is catastrophic, but for the tradition of the oppressed, this catastrophic uh, catastrophe is like previous moments and moments to come. It is not, as Benjamin reminds us in that text, homogeneous empty time. And it is also not a moment where time stands still and has come to a stop. We need to attend to the historical specificity of this time, of this place, but we also should not fetishize the present moment as if it randomly dropped from the skies. In that vein, consider the following moment. 8.18 p.m. on the 25th of May in the year 2020 at the intersection of East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. It is a moment when George Floyd couldn't breathe. A state of emergency that was, for Floyd, a state of exception, cause of death, mechanical asphyxiation, as the pathologist report, autopsy report uh, claims. 8.18 p.m. on the 25th of May in the year 2020 at the intersection of East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. It is a moment when George Floyd couldn't breathe. A state of emergency that was, for Floyd, also the rule, cause of death, racial capitalism. The routines of racial capitalism and the catastrophe of racial capitalism. There is a web of connections behind that moment, 8.18 p.m. on the 25th of May in the year 2020, when Derek Chauvin pressed his knee on George Floyd's neck. Ruthie Gilmore points out that the young store clerk who called the cops suspecting George Floyd of a counterfeit $20 bill was essentially deputized by the police not personally and directly deputized, but deputized in ways that she experiences a personal responsibility, doing her job to keep her job. In America, this is a state of emergency that targets black people, but enlists everyone. A shop clerk alert to the possibility of petty theft, teachers dealing with a student deemed disruptive, a neighbor worried about public safety, pedestrians encountering the homeless on a park bench, a commuter seeker person with mental health issues on the subway, a bartender with a drunk customer, they all routine, routinely call the police as if this was not a catastrophic battle in a state of emergency. Moreover, this battle stretches into World War, going back to 1419 and beyond. The moment of 8.18 p.m. on the 25th of May in the year 2020 is imbricated in the history of slavery and settler colonialism, it's implicated in the war on crime and the war on terror. It's implicated in neoliberal austerity and neocolonial empire, implicated in lawfare and warfare. 
When faced with a state of emergency, it is seductive to slip back to liberal certitudes as a defense against catastrophe. If we had better regulation of the police, if we threw out the bad apples, if we had more checks and balances in the criminal justice system. In fact, on the eve of the American elections, there is no better reminder of the seductions of liberal promises as a defense against a state of emergency. The urgency to get Trump out of office often veers into messianic exaltations of the Biden candidacy. The man for this moment as a re recent New York Times piece uh, gushed. Or similar laments about the erosion of the Supreme Court or adulation about the constitution as if these were not part of the rule that is a state of emergency. As Benjamin reminds us in Thesis 7, all of these trophies of civilization, elections, constitutions, the Supreme Court, there is no document, he says, of civilization, which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. Or as I've argued elsewhere, back translating Carl Schmitt, we might say that sovereign is he who decides on the state of normalcy, on what is not the state of exception. And Biden-Harris, no less than Trump-Pence, it's just that they are, are sovereign. No, it's just that their claims to the state of normalcy have great attraction. In fact, the irony is that Trump is seeking to perform exception, despite all the indicators that he too is just another manifestation of normalcy, from booming stock markets to a court nomination process that's going through the rituals of Senate hearings and committee reports. We still have the rule. Elsewhere in the text, Benjamin speaks about how the themes which monastic discipline assigned to friars for meditation were designed to turn, away from, uh, turn them away from the world and its affairs. And to some extent, this reliance on elections and courts as a salvation and anchor in catastrophic times can do similar work of turning us away from the world. It can do the work of normalizing the really fundamental issues and displacing the struggles and contestations against the rule. <clears throat> the contestations that brush history against the grain. We need to vote Trump out of office and we need to challenge Barrett's nomination. But these are just shifting us to a different register of the emergency. Perhaps one where we determine that the hurdle towards a precipice has a better navigable velocity so that the struggle against the rule takes place on different terms. However, it is still the struggle against the rule and we will still be in a state of emergency. Benjamin's critique of progress narratives, his reminders of the wreckage upon wreckage that is piling up, resonates with the work of critical international law scholarship. There's a taxonomy of familiar moves that the crits have employed in thinking about crisis in international law and challenging its therapeutizing and anesthetizing promise of progress in the names of human rights, humanitarianism, or self-determination. For instance, the repertoire of such moves have included refusing the notion that this is a new crisis, exposing our routine as crisis, examining, illuminating the genealogies of particular constructions of crisis, unpacking the distributive impacts of crisis, analyzing how a focus on one crisis can obscure another, yoking slow violence with catastrophic crisis. Mostly we work, uh, the work we do employ hermeneutics of suspicion and develop paranoid readings of what the discipline presents as crisis. Yet here I think it is significant that Benjamin is not only reminding us about the need to interrogate talk of the state of exception, but how we interrogate. It is not by employing left analytical mechanics from one crisis and invocation to the next, but instead by attending, as he says, to the tradition of the oppressed. What does it mean? He gives us some hints. It is by shifting, he says, our radical energies for hatred and its spirit of sacrifice, so that it is nourished not only by the image of the enslaved ancestors, 
but more pivotally by, by the image of our liberated grandchildren. This is perhaps an Eve Sedgwick-like call for us to move from paranoid thinking to reparative thinking. Benjamin, of course, has a critique of linear histories and progress narratives, but perhaps also of linear histories and regression narratives. If liberals fall into the trap of progress narratives, arguably today the left may fall into the seductions of regression narratives. When Benjamin calls for blasting open the continuum of history, it's about resisting linear regression narratives through our actions, but changing the trajectory of history with an eye to the image of our liberated grandchildren. This is not because we believe in progress, but because that image calls on us to wrestle history away from the precipice, to seize hold of a moment as it flashes up at a moment of danger, to wrest tradition away. This is pulling the left away from red alerts about fascism and exceptional times. That kind of fascism talk renders our political landscape a disabling polarity of repression and liberation, authoritarianism and democracy, of progress and regression, state of nature and social contracts. Instead, Benjamin says, our task is to bring about a real state of emergency. So if I go back in concluding to that moment on 8.18 p.m. on the 25th of May in the year 2020, at the intersection of East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis, the protests that followed that moment, these were aimed at that real emergency. Those marchers and demonstrations were learning from the tradition of the oppressed to confront the fact that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. The coordinates of elections and constitutions, and even the lines we drew in our battles with them, have been scrambled. The histories and futures of those battles are being rewritten as we speak, settling and unsettling the way memory and futurity are stitched together in different narratives of international law and the crisis of colonialism, slavery, and their afterlives in a real state of emergency. The idea of abolition, once so far away, it was unthinkable. Today, this idea has become thinkable. Great. Um, thank you, Vasuki. A great deal to unpack there. And we will get the chance to do that after we hear from Carly. Thank you, Gary. And, and thank you both, Sanan and Vasuki, for those wonderful comments. I'm in awe and really eager to get to the discussion um, and very excited to engage further with you. Um, like Vasuki said, I, I don't know if I'll be quite as responsible as Sanan was with his time. And ironically, I'm talking a bit about time and temporality, so hopefully don't go over time, but, but I think it should be around the same length as what we uh, just heard, those wonderful remarks. So I'd like to focus first for a few minutes on how the pandemic has been exploited to justify and worsen environmental racism and injustice before then offering some broader thoughts and questions about Benjamin's work and the implications of the crisis conditions of the current moment following um, the wonderful interventions we just heard. And amid the pandemic where the running joke is sort of that the days feel like months and the months feel like years, I also wanna consider the ways in which crisis conditions alter our experience of time and create these sensations of an interminable present, uh, which is talked about a lot in the darkly humorous fashion I just mentioned. And I think uh, Vasuki had some great comments on this point as well, because uh, this actually also produces conditions of protracted injustice or worsens ones already in existence. And is there any way to reclaim that interminable present in a just and equitable fashion as opposed to succumbing to perpetual crisis as the unjust entrapment that it often is and can be, and as I think many are experiencing it as amid the current conditions of the pandemic and beyond. 
So with the US election just uh, less than two weeks away and drawing on some of my own research, I'll focus initially in particular on the US and the extent to which the Trump administration has weaponized the pandemic as an opportunity to achieve environmental deregulation with damaging consequences for public health, specifically with dire consequences for public health in Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities. The COVID death toll, uh, when I last checked this week, was at 220,000 in the US and about 1.12 million worldwide. And as we know, the impacts on communities of color in the US have been markedly disproportionate. This became clear early in the pandemic, but it has become clearer and clearer in recent months just how severe these disparities really are. So just to give a snapshot, uh, research from this past summer showed that Black people in the U.S. are over three and a half times more likely to die of COVID-19 than white people, Latinx people 1.88 times more likely. All of this is occurring within an existing context of environmental racism, but the new policies that are being put in place in the U.S. are dangerously furthering these existing injustices. So I'll briefly walk through some elements of that backdrop of environmental racism and then explain what the administration is doing now in terms of exploiting the pandemic. One of the foremost examples of the devastation of environmental racism in the U.S. is the disproportionate effects of air pollution, which we now know is directly linked to higher COVID death rates, and communities of color are subject to pollution inequity. For example, Black children are twice as likely as others in the U.S. to develop asthma. Uh, black people in the U.S. are 75% more likely to live in fence line communities. These are communities in direct proximity to industrial and service facilities, often subjected to toxic chemical emissions from these facilities. So how does this relate specifically to COVID? Well, as Harriet Washington, a journalist and public health scholar notes, it's true that pathogens are democratic by nature. It's also true that marginalized minority ethnic groups have increased exposure to environmental pollution and reduced access to health care. These factors combine to make people of color, in Washington's words, less able to resist and survive infections such as the coronavirus. So how does this connect to the premise of our event, which is that the pandemic has not merely exacerbated existing injustices or tensions, but it has actually provided an opportunity for, as our title suggests, exploitative lawmaking. Well, there are numerous examples of this, um, but I'll stick to a few key ones. And some of these are actually outlined in a piece I wrote for the Quick Thought series uh, for the online magazine, Jadalia, if uh, you'd like to read about this in any more detail. So in March, the US Environmental Protection Agency, which has been filled uh, by the Trump administration with staff members actually hostile to the core mission of the agency of environmental protection, um, has issued what was called an enforcement discretion policy. And former EPA leader and current Natural Resources Defense Council president and CEO, Gina McCarthy, framed this blatantly as an open license to pollute, among many other critiques that were launched. In May and June, Donald Trump issued two executive orders. One was broadly seeking to suspend environmental regulations, aiming to enable polluters to disregard fundamental clean air and water protections under the guise of supporting the economy in the context of the COVID national emergency. Then in June came another executive order to waive mandatory environmental reviews of infrastructure projects. So these measures cite the current state of national emergency as justification, but there is no indication of future plans to reinstate the environmental protections that have been targeted. We can assume that these policies will stick around and do long-term damage, creating another protracted emergency in the environmental justice realm. Other examples include the April rollback of the mercury and air toxics standards rule, which regulates mercury, a powerful neurotoxin, and other heavy metals released from power plants. And more recently, the administration targeted the National Environmental Policy Act, striving once again to limit environmental regulations that protect health and minimizing consideration of cumulative 
or indirect impacts of projects like pipelines, which also emphasizes how local level environmental injustice always connects to the international climate crisis, which um, I can come back to in the discussion a bit perhaps. And we've seen over time that devastation to communities in places like Louisiana's Cancer Alley, which is an area that hosts more than 150 chemical plants and refineries and has a wildly high devastating cancer rate. These effects don't emerge overnight as Robert D. Bullard and other scholars of environmental justice have documented for decades, we need protections that consider long-term as well as short-term impacts. And yet a pandemic that by nature targets public health has been exploited as the prime opportunity to do away with these protections as has long been the goal for many uh, like Trump and in his political camp. So to bring all this information back to our core focus today on states of emergency and crisis conditions and the exploitation of them by authoritarian and corrupt regimes and people in positions of power, I'm really interested to discuss the wider pattern of this phenomenon across time and across cases and conversation with the outstanding examples that um, others have already shared. Another critical aspect of this exploitation of the pandemic, for example, has had to do with immigration policy and using the pandemic to serve as a cover to escalate the systematic dismantling of public protections regarding immigration and deportation in a variety of ways, but um, including weaponizing historical quarantine laws in ways that have made unaccompanied minors even more vulnerable. And the systematic deliberate targeting of protections has followed a similar strategic pattern to what we've seen with environmental protections. We've also seen this unfold on the city level, both in terms of targeting protesters and violating their rights in the aftermath of the police killing of George Floyd, as was mentioned, um, such as also with the suspension of habeas corpus in New York City during the protest, which allowed for people arrested to be held for longer than 24 hours. And then we saw the Trump administration's targeting of New York City, Portland, Seattle, as so-called anarchist cities in order to try to reduce federal funding for these cities following Trump's deployment of federal agents to Portland already, which further deepens our understanding, I think, of not only exploiting crisis conditions for unjust lawmaking, but also producing crisis conditions in the first place. In another one of Benjamin's celebrated essays, Critique of Violence, he wrote, all violence as a, mean is, as a means is either lawmaking or law preserving. And you could have, and there are entire conferences or books to unpack this essay or even this uh, statement alone. I won't try with the time I have today, but for our purposes here and this discussion, I think something really important to take from this is to understand the nexus or origin of violence amid a time that is as filled with injustice and illness and death as this pandemic has been. And as Sanana Vasuki pointed out, um, that emergency predates the pandemic, of course, in, in ways we'll continue to discuss. But the narration of the pandemic by many governments has been, and I think will largely continue to be, that with an event of this magnitude, there's going to be loss in terms of human life, in terms of financial loss, and loss of quality of life, life and various freedoms. And we've had this language of sacrifice for the sake of the economy that's deeply problematic and troubling. Uh, but when we look at just one instance that I focus on, which is examining the pandemic through the lens of environmental injustice, it becomes blatantly clear, I would argue, that the origin and center of much of the violence uh, so many are experiencing through this pandemic actually lies with decisions being made by governmental regimes. In this case, the Trump administration, but also in other contexts worldwide. And certainly this applies in many ways uh, in the UK as well. And I think when we go back to the quote that spark this whole conversation in many ways. The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. We must first realize that responsibility for the violence being experienced today 
does lie with current regimes for exactly the policy and legal decisions that we've outlined, but also, um, as Sanan indicated, with the historical predecessors of these regimes in ways that necessitate that we connect the current crises back to historical and systemic injustice as well. So again, Benjamin refers to the state of emergency as a prescriptive reality that is imposed upon us. And I think perhaps an initial aspect of this conversation is to question what are the other unrecognized states of emergency in which we already live? Whether we're talking about protracted violence in the form of racism or the aftermath of invasion and occupation or ongoing effects of that or the long-term health effects of environmental injustice. And in addition to the deep physical and ethical violence produced by these situations, quite literally, um, as was shared, and, and just to touch on this a bit more, more than 20, I believe, national emergencies remain active in the U.S. alone today. These range, I won't exhaustively list them all, I hope we can discuss some of them, but these range from sanctions against Iran as uh, well as the Bush administration's two September 2001 national emergencies that were mentioned, as well as most recently uh, Trump's executive order from June drawing on the National Emergency Act to authorize asset freezes and entry bans for international criminal court personnel and their families. So the ideas shared so far have showed uh, powerfully how existing backdrops of violence fuel not only protracted states of injustice, but enable the weaponization of new crises and these official states of emergency. And on that note, um, beginning to, to wrap up, Legal scholar Hillary Charlesworth has written about international law as a discipline of crisis, noting how crises are not only catalysts alone for international lawmaking, but they do dominate the imagination of the field. And she raises a few critiques, which I think pair really interestingly with Benjamin's articulation of the state of emergency. She says that the crisis model assumes that the facts of a crisis are uncontroversial, that the model enables us to rediscover an issue constantly without building on past knowledge and past scholarship and that international law's obsession with crisis leads us to fixate on single events and miss the bigger picture. And I think this advocacy for a form of lawmaking that attends not only to everyday life, but to the emergencies and crises that are everyday life for people who are pushed to the margins of society and of law fits really interestingly in conversation with Benjamin's uh, writing, but also specifically with his description of the Paul Clay painting that shows the angel of history. And Benjamin describes how where we perceive a chain of events, the angel of history depicted in this painting sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet and is propelled by a storm into a future to which his back is turned. And this storm is what we call progress, Benjamin says. So Charles work, uh, Charlesworth's work offers such a strong and compelling critique of the overuse of crisis and the dangers of that overuse, but also points to the unrecognized suffering in the realm of the everyday. And building on the overuse of or excessive focus on crisis, I'm actually also interested in how Benjamin is advocating that, in fact, we underdeploy crisis. Now, not to interpret him to say we should promote crisis in any way or engage with it in a way that promotes hyperbole or the overuse of it as a label or category, but in a way that forces us to reconcile with the lived daily realities for so many people that, as I said, already qualify as crisis conditions and how these people's realities go unrecognized. So whether that's in terms of the violence of the conflict zone um, of toxic exposure or of the violence experienced daily by people with disabilities, for example, who have been profoundly marginalized by this pandemic. I think drawing on Benjamin's work to spark this line of questioning invites us 
to recognize how states of emergency are deeply ingrained and codified into our daily being, and to consider what it means to live in a perpetual storm of progress comprised of many of the examples that have been shared, and to consider how some people and some communities get disproportionately drenched and battered by the wrath of that storm. And uh, I'm probably biased on this last point because my own research interests uh, center on citizenship and rethinking the concept of de facto statelessness, uh, meaning the ways in which people are rendered rightless even when in possession of nationality and citizenship rights and the protections of their government. But I think that many of the forces of injustice discussed today, whether connected directly to the pandemic or otherwise, force us to engage once again with the violence of the law, whether that violence is lawmaking or law preserving to use Benjamin's terms and push us to witness and recognize states of de facto rightlessness in spite or even because of de jure government protections. And thinking about the rights both afforded and neglected or denied by governments in her text on violence, Hannah Arendt talks about bureaucratized government and the production of conditions in which all are equally powerless and describes this as tyranny without a tyrant. And I just bring this up to note that these questions surrounding perpetual emergency have particular urgency under the Trump administration. But as Vasuki put so eloquently, um, and as we see with the Iraq war, as Sinan shared, uh, these conditions predate and will outlive our current circumstances, uh, regardless of the tyrant that, that is in place. So keeping in mind the power and the deeply problematic nature of, of the current administration, but also the tyrannical context that extend beyond the power of individuals in the current circumstances. So um, to close and just circle back in conclusion to my initial question about time, as I you know, I run out of time, just recognizing our collective and protracted state of emergency as the exception and not the rule, enable us to somehow reclaim crisis conditions as opportunities to highlight long-term injustices and demand amelioration of these injustices by our governments, as opposed to the narrative of crisis that is imposed as an acute manifestation of the ongoing storm of progress and of crisis as a force that supersedes our ongoing work and our ability to combat systemic injustice. So by no means am I suggesting here um, a narrative of uh, Western capitalism or progress that turns crisis into an opportunity or lemons into lemonade, quite the opposite. I'm interested in discussing how crisis can be reclaimed by those it most impacts in meaningful ways in order to grapple with long-term emergencies that rule over the daily lives of so many. So I'll stop it there and, and hand it over to Gary to kick off the discussion and thank you so much. Thank you very much, Carly. And those were, you know, remarkably trenchant uh, comments and papers. So I think the, 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 what's going to happen now is that a series of questions are going to emerge through the ether down this chat line. In fact, some of them already have. There's a question from John Smith, an LSE student at, at, uh, in Newcastle. But I wanted to, to start up, off the conversation with a couple of questions. Um, first of all, a thought about international law and crisis, just following on from what Carly said about Hillary Charlesworth. In fact, when I began studying international law, um, it was very much the study of international law as, as a response, not so much a discipline of crisis, but a response to a series of crises. So it was at the moment of the kind of casebook method pioneered by Western Falcon D'Amato and the New Haven School. I remember Michael Reisman wrote a book called Incidents in International Law, which asked us to think of these incidents as the epistemic units of international legal study. And Hillary Charlesworth's essay was a powerful um, antidote to that idea, this discipline of crisis idea. But so I have, I have a 
few questions, and I, I want to also sort of take up the the the, the Yatesian invitation from slouching towards Bethlehem as well. But first of all, um, so two relationships I'm interested in. One would be the relationship between crisis and emergency. Um, so I thought it'd be worth hearing your thoughts on that. Sometimes the phrases were used interchangeably. Sometimes it seemed that crisis uh, provoked emergency. Sometimes it seemed as if both crisis and emergency were permanent. So sometimes something, one, one of these figures seemed to be temporal, the other seemed to be uh, responsive or juridical. So I wonder if we could think think through that relationship. Um, and, and, and related to that uh, is the relationship between the idea of the formal emergency and the existence of the state of emergency. So to what extent one is parasitic on the other? This is, Sinan talked about, gave us a sort of inventory of, um, of emergency, formal declarations of emergency by, by government. And I, I wondered again, if we could think through the relationship between these formal proclamations of emergency and the existence of uh, the permanent state of emergency. I mean, it, it used to be said, for example, that in Paraguay under Stroessner, they, they had a state of emergency that lasted for 364 days every year, not including leap years. So there was one day that wasn't a state of emergency. And this seemed to tell us something important about both proclamation and the state of emergency. Um, and then, you know, finally, just just a, a thought on 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 Yates. This idea of the best, the best um, lacking all conviction, and the worst being full of passionate intensity from from uh, from the first first verse of the of the second coming. I wonder if we could reverse that these days. That that in fact it's the best that have passionate conviction, but uh, uh, passionate intensity, and the worst in some way lack conviction. Uh, if we think of the worst as being somehow uh, a, a sort of liberal mainstream rather than the obvious uh, neo alt right populists, then we can think of, we can think of, we can at least it might be provocative to to reverse or subvert the, the sort of Yeatsian thesis and, and also the pessimism associated with with that. So those are I think we'll kick off with those those questions if indeed they can be reconfigured by you as questions. And then I will, I, I will sort of, uh, I might re recount some of the questions from the side of the side of the screen. So, Sina, do you want to just take us in the order that we uh, we spoke? If you feel inclined, if you feel inclined to respond, I I don't have much to to add, but I think to to reiterate the fact what what Carly was saying and the fact that so many of these uh, so-called declarations of formal emergency are still there after all of these years pushes us to question the boundaries between an actual emergency and normalcy. Because it's, if there is an emergency from the time of Carter until today, and if the, so I think it just speaks to the state's ability, of course, to designate a formal emergency becomes normalcy. And then the old, very simple, but very important question is for whom? Again, as the presentations showed so eloquently, Emergency for whom? Who's the subject of emergency? And who's the object of the measures that are taken because of this supposed emergency? Um, that's all I have to say, but I, I leave it. I defer to my... I just, I just wanted to follow up one, one small point there. Do you, do you think it's a, 
It, do you think it's a useful intellectual exercise to track the origins of emergency? So, so you, you've sort of suggested that something happened during the Carter era. It may be a very formal idea of emergency, but is this a, is this a sort of, sort of a project that we should be engaged in? Well, I think it's just useful for citizens. I mean, to, to bring an example from the war on terror and a, and a very concrete example in um, in Iraq in the 70s, a certain uh, opposition group uh, was engaged in, in violence against the Iraqi regime. And it, was, and it was also the group that was engaged in violence in Beirut. And that group was designated as a terrorist organization. In 2003, uh, the U.S. installed a regime where that very same terrorist group became the ruling party of Iraq. So I think... Um, we shouldn't spend too much energy, but I think just being mindful and cognizant of the fact that the designations of terrorist or non-terrorist groups and designations of what counts for emergency and what doesn't and the way it shifts and moves uh, should be, we should always remind fellow citizens of those fictitious borders between this and that and then what this movement or this geography of violence or of emergency, what, who is profiting from this discursively and financially and how is it being deployed? Yeah, great, thank you. Um, Vasuki. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. So, um, so yes, yeah, so a bit, bit random um, reflections on what you what you raised, uh, Gary. Um, so, I do think that that the line between crisis and emergency. I mean, I know there was a lot of slippage in how we used it, and I think there's slippage out there. So, once you have a permanent war, um, you know that it just changes the. The, the kinds of, and I think there is some value in tracing the different techniques of governance at different moments. And certainly now it seems that, you know, most countries, um, most countries are probably under, have declared some kind of um, emergency ever since, um, certainly ever since 9-11, but perhaps after that as well, so that every every problem that's addressed now comes under emergency regulation. Um, so um, the, the old debates, um, that one can sort of nostalgically um, perhaps um, look at in terms of um, people like Bruce Ackerman and so on about how to keep emergency in check. They all seem sort of cute and irrelevant now um, because the emergencies have become um, so um, so universal as a dominant governance technology, not something that you go on. Um, you, you have to invoke a lot of, um, um, you, you, have, you have to do a lot of work to make, to make a claim that, um, things require emergencies. On the other hand, there are many emergencies, I mean, many contexts which we think should require emergencies. I mean, climate change, as Kali uh, spoke about, was, was one where emergencies are not declared and they're not, they're treated as the rule, as something that's just normal and, you know, everyday and suddenly, you know, uh, police violence against um, uh, against black people in the US is another one of them. They're just seen as part of routine business. So I think often the critical move is saying, is, you know, mapping where, what is and what isn't. And I think that's sort of, um, that's sort of a useful, useful thing to do and to look at different moments in terms of sort of giving some historical, um, historical specificity to it. Um, See, I had one more thing I was going to say, but I does, um, I, I've, I've forgotten. So maybe I'll, I'll come back to it. Uh, oh, the Yates, the Yates thing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I was just reading in the Guardian um, this morning um, something about Donald Trump Jr. being the next, uh, you know, being the heir apparent. And there's no politics there. There's no, you know, it is not like, you know, we would talk about Reagan and um, Thatcher in terms of a particular idea. There's nothing there. 
it's just it, it's just pure pure i mean so and it's run on pure emptiness and that's why it can be all about winning the election it doesn't have to be about you know convincing people about this ideology or that ideology um and arguably that's equally true of biden <laughs> who knows what biden is we everyone is uh you know and maybe biden himself is confused um and sometimes that could be a good thing <laughs> but in sometimes but but you know so it's um i think so i think yes that is true and that's in a sense that reversal is actually a, oh, not that, that that part of it but certainly the part of it about the the the, the good guys being more passionate um that i think is super promising but that's what i see as black lives matter i mean ever since occupy i mean that's the, the i think you know the it's a generational shift um and i think there it is definitely true that people are um they're creating this um, it's it, the the anarchist jurisdiction um label may have been a post facto thing people are creating little carving out little spaces from the routine in ways that are pushing against the Brain, um in ways that are creative and um and, and inspiring yeah yeah that's that's right it's funny you should mention Thatcher and Reagan uh, as I've sort of circulated amongst the British middle classes recently I've, I've picked up a certain nostalgia for Margaret Thatcher that had never before been present so so I don't know if the same thing is happening in relation to 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 to, to Reagan the, the idea of, of of Reagan as as a substantive as someone with a substantive politics is interesting I think it's probably correct but it would have seemed it would have seemed a very eccentric position to take back in the 1980s it's now been rendered less eccentric by present circumstances um Carly Thanks, Gary, for uh, the reflections and the question, and, and again, for the wonderful uh, comments posed by Basuki and Sanan. So I have kind of a two, two directions to, to go to with this as I was thinking, uh, as the others were talking. Um, one is I was thinking about you know, emergency and crisis and how these feed into each other and what is the difference. So I uh, looked up the dictionary definition because I think, you know, are we taking these terms for granted and can we make it a lot simpler and less uh, academic and more down to earth? And I don't think it offers to report back uh, any conclusive findings. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about as you've been talking is the ways in which, you know, emergency emerges, pardon the alliteration and the wordplay, but, um, um, you know, emergency sort of leads to crisis conditions, which then justify these official states of emergency. But I think it's a vicious feedback loop. And I think that there's um, maybe not linguistically, but politically sort of a deliberateness to the, the obscure or unclear nature of the connection between these terms. So I think it's, it's very interesting to continue to think about. Then actually something, uh, and what I looked up was productive because it reminded me of the very interesting point that Sanan raised about Iraq and um, about how the violence there has metastasized and how that's not just a metaphor. And I, I believe, uh, you know, knowing uh, what I do about that situation that um, Sanan is also talking about the toxic after effects and ongoing effects of that war. So I would love to bring that more into the discussion and hear um, more about that because um, one of the many definitions of crisis is the turning point of a disease when an important change takes place, indicating either recovery or death. So uh, some interesting uh, metaphors about illness and wounds to be had there perhaps, both as Sanan said, in a literal sense in terms of um, birth defects and cancer and how that has profoundly impacted Iraqi civilians and also 
um, metaphorically, intellectually thinking through our questions for today. Then to kind of pivot to the, the second half of what I wanted to just share, um, I think this discussion about looking at the relationship between emergency and crisis and the differences and the similarities, um, and Vasuki mentioned this with the climate crisis, reminds me, uh, going back to the theme of environmental injustice and racism and its relevance here, about acknowledging the connection between local level environmental racism and climate justice and how these are often very dangerously separated. So we've seen with the pandemic, uh, for example, the Trump administration's uh, support of and cooperation with lobbying firms to promote um, you know, their, their associates to basically get uh, fast-track EPA approval and contracts for matters that have to do with the pandemic and issues of corruption like this. And we've seen a parallel of this pattern, and, and again, looking at greed at the expense of the public's right to knowledge and preparation, playing out with withholding of the information about the climate crisis in the last several years. And again, this connects to local level environmental injustice, because yes, this is the global climate crisis that must be repeatedly emphasized, that's key, but also this will disproportionately impact again, the same black and brown communities that are already uh, disproportionately impacted by environmental injustice. And um, for example, in Flint, Michigan, um, we saw that the EPA and officials at the state and city levels knew about the water crisis there uh, going back to 2014, uh, long before it was revealed, but that information was concealed. And this follows the same pattern as governmental excuses to prevent meaningful action on climate change, that there's an awareness of certain information, but to prevent emergency or crisis or mass panic, or just to prevent the financial or political cost of having to grapple with these things, that information is withheld and on a multitude of scales, people are deemed expendable time and again, while economic gain for uh, an elite group is prioritized. And again, this predates Trump and the current era, but I think there is a certain brand of impunity maybe that, that we're seeing now and that we've seen before, but that we're seeing in a particular way now. Uh, so yeah, I'll stop there, we can maybe continue the conversation. Great, that's great, thank you. Thank you, Carly. So I, I feel in the interest of democracy and, and because of the form of the webinar, we should bring in some of the questions from the side. Matthew, I presume that questions will begin to arrive. We've got two or three here. Um, so let me start with the, let me start with the last one, which um, I know, I know you've, you've all, you've all touched on this, but, but, but it seems to have a special sort of COVID-19 inflection. So let's, let's, let's have a look at that. So the question is, has emergency become normalcy in the era of COVID-19? And does the current atmosphere undermine democracy and glorify authoritarian regimes? All right, so let's let's go backwards on this one, Carly. Sorry, I know you've just you've just finished a long peroration on this subject, and now I'm asking you to come back again. But do you want to have a go at that question? Because I know we've 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 touched on it already. Yeah. There we go. Muted. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just looking at it. So does emergency become normalcy, and does the current atmosphere undermine democracy and glorify authoritarian regimes? Yeah, I think you know this question really speaks to everything that's already been shared. Um, I won't take too much time having just kind of exhaustively gone through some of this, but I think this last part of, um, you know, we've talked about 
the, the current atmosphere and, and how that undermines democracy, I think absolutely. I think that's a very you know pointed comment and, and one that deserves further consideration. But this point about glorifying authoritarian regimes, I think is really interesting because, um, and I'd like to hear both Vasuki and Sanan's comments on this further, but Vasuki kind of talked about this with Trump and this tussle between the urgency you know, speaking from my own views, not speaking on anyone else's behalf, though I'll presume to some extent, the urgency of removing Trump from office and the immediate damage that is being done and kind of looking at the situation that, you know, if you have a gaping wound that's bleeding out, to go back to that metaphor, um, you have to first stop the bleeding and then, you know, move on to other policy reforms. But the danger also of that thinking and the danger of the argument that, um, you know, if we if we just stop the bleeding, then real change can occur. Because while it is often presented as a new phenomenon, we've seen that before where the bleeding, you know, in certain ways for certain groups for certain people does stop, but it continues for others in ways that weren't even being addressed in the first place. So does the rhetoric of emergency or the normalization of emergency glorify authoritarian regimes? Potentially, I think we should push back against that. I think that we've seen the glorification of Trump as a tyrant, um, obviously by his supporters, but also the way this rhetoric, perhaps unintentionally by those who don't support him, feeds into that as well. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there and, and see what others have to say, but an interesting one to come back to. Yeah, thanks. Basuki, do you want to come in on that? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's interesting. I mean, I um, I guess my strategic take in in terms of uh, intervening in this current, in the world as we have it now, is to actually, um, is, is on the one hand to, you know, of course, you you I, I completely agree with Kali in terms of, you know, the, the wound that's sort of gushing out, you need to, you, you need, you, just, you need to um, uh, address it uh, uh, address it immediately, and that that decides, in some sense, your sort of triage call about um, you know what to address now. But it, um, but I'm also worried. I mean, I guess I would also have the worry about the the contrast between authoritarianism and democracy as being, in some sense, often part of the problem rather than the solution. Be difficult to understand, for instance, the war on terror. Uh, uh, or the, the everything that Sinan spoke about in terms of the intervention against uh, uh, in in Iraq, uh, without that being part of the grammar of political intervention, um, the the opposition between democracy and uh, and authoritarianism, um, uh, which uh, both uh, did not does not speak. I mean, most specifically, does not speak about the all the different kinds of um, authoritarian dimensions of democracy as we have it now. So. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the sort of simple, the simplistic semantic thing would be to say, don't, don't speak, let's not speak of democracy as a noun, let's speak of it as a verb. And therefore, it's not something that is, that we can contrast uh, with, with authoritarianism. It's always a, always an ongoing project. But suddenly those countries that have seen themselves as being, as branded by democracy and as, as selling democracy, especially through that contrast with authoritarianism, um, I would hesitate to sort of go down that path. I would, I would think that actually there, our task may be to, on the one hand, fight authoritarianism, but on the other hand, to also um, uh, fight that equation. Sina, I mean, there isn't, there isn't much to add except to, I mean, I think there's a problem oftentimes when thinking of the Trump phenomenon of just thinking of the date of election and not realizing that. 
the genealogy of the Trump phenomena go back years before. The other issue, the question about emergency becoming normalcy, once again, I mean, I think we just have to really focus on this in that, you know, there is a hierarchy of, of inequality and that, you know, emergency does not affect everyone equally. And it's not an emergency for so many because of where they are positioned on the hierarchy of power and, and privilege and so on and so forth. Yeah, great. Um, so we have uh, we have another question um, from Kishore, uh, which is, I mean, again, it, it slightly restates some of the points that were made before Kishore asked his question. So he's to be forgiven for that. But, but the question is, you know, are we permanently at war now against intangible foes? Uh, but then, but then the second half of the question is: is the state of war or emergency? You know, simply a rhetorical device to justify exceptional measures. So I suppose there's something in there about the relationship between the material and the discursive that we might want to we, we might want to take up. Do we want to take it up? Yeah, I could I jump in. I actually it kind of feeds in, I think, uh, to this question, as you said, thematically linked to what's been said, and, and specifically with uh, some of Vasuki and Sinan's comments. I think. You know, this divide between democracy and authoritarianism or the danger between looking at them perhaps and, and to build on what Vasuki said, not to misstate or restate her wonderful remarks at all. But um, I think there is a danger between assuming and looking at democracy and authoritarianism as polar opposites. I think, you know, as has been indicated, it, there's much to be done with actually looking at how they're very closely woven into each other. And it reminds me just to go back uh, to this area, you know, with citizenship and rightlessness, it reminds me of um, a quote from Giorgio Agamben, where he describes the refugee as a figure that um, allows us to perceive the form and limits of a political community to come. And, you know, the refugee as a symbol, but also actual people who are in states of rightlessness and lacking citizenship and who this affects on a daily profound basis. Um, these figures as sort of a, a marker, an indication of the bounds of, as he calls it, the political community. And I think that there are actually many people who are citizens of a state, you know, like the U.S., where their rights should be enshrined, where they should have greater protections than someone in a position of statelessness. And in fact, that's not the case. So, uh, again, thinking about examples that I mentioned, people, you know, left stranded without water and in a place like Flint, Michigan or Detroit, there was actually a quote from someone doing activism work in Detroit that said, we're left as refugees in the city because of the environmental injustice we're considering. So just looking at how democracy and authoritarianism are unfortunately actually probably much more linked than uh, the rhetoric we hear often indicates, I think that you know, possession of rights and rightlessness and the category of refugee or displaced and citizen um, of, you know, supposedly a leading world power like the US, these categories are also much more intimately linked than um, is often made immediately apparent. So um, touching on the question, but I'll leave it to others if they wanna more directly add something to build on the query. Carly, there's a question that seems directed specifically towards you at the end here, um, thanking you for your paper and so on and so forth and saying, how can people and new political movements have a role in reducing the impact of such injustice, especially since it's obviously touching everyone now? 
especially with the spread of COVID-19. So I guess that, that's a question, but, but built into that question is another question about whether COVID-19 has somehow made apparent the permanence of crisis in a way that wasn't apparent before. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, sharing that question, Gary, um, and to the question asker as well. Uh, I think that that's an important one, and, and it just reminds me to raise the point that I think there there is and will be pushback, again, looking, in my case, specifically at examples of environmental racism, but this applies to uh, the examples with George Floyd and the Iraq War and other examples shared, um, but specifically thinking about the climate crisis and the pandemic, I think there's pushback often of, yes, you know, there are acute needs and disproportionate effects, but doesn't this affect everybody? And shouldn't we be attentive to the global nature of this crisis? And I think, you know, as you might have picked up on from what I've already said, that's absolutely the wrong way to go about this thinking. As Sanam was saying, we have to look at the predecessors and the origins of these crises. And I think that people who are forced into the position of being, um, you know, not, not to use the terminology of war, which is, I think, deeply problematic, as we've seen, but the front lines of these crises, whether it is environment, climate, or the pandemic, or the linkages between these, I think that, you know, we're witnessing how this will affect people worldwide in more ways and more marginalized groups than we can even imagine. And again, I, I come back to the case of people with disabilities, because that's often an invisible one. And we've seen uh, with the pandemic, the extent to which that population has really been profoundly impacted. And even though there's been a lot of wonderful work from organizations like Human Rights Watch and raising awareness of that, um, I think, you know, that's one of many groups, but one in particular that continues to be impacted in silence. And we've seen that also with, uh, you know, homes for senior citizens and, and these groups that are impacted make the headlines, but it continues to be um, kind of in the backdrop. So how can people and new political movements have a role to reduce the impact? I mean, I think it's through a lot of what we're already seeing, activism that demands uh, specific policy reforms, but it's obviously such an uphill battle um, in the current in the current context. But I think that one of the side effects of the Trump effect is that um, not that it was worth it anyway, but that we've actually seen people who are apathetic or apolitical become galvanized to some degree and engage um, in these issues in a way that they weren't before. So I think that's something to continue to build momentum with. And I think we've also seen issues where people were on the sidelines, especially having to do with contentious issues of human rights in the Middle East that maybe shouldn't be contentious at all, but that because of this political backdrop and the states of national emergency are framed that way, um, I think we've seen people more willing to engage or support uh, you know, marginalized populations and certain causes, perhaps simply because Trump so offensively and sloppily deals in his handling and his opposition to these causes. So I don't think that's the way any of us who are passionate about these various issues would have designed going about getting more support uh, or awareness for certain issues, but perhaps it's a side effect that can be used to build momentum in a positive way. Yeah. Does anyone want to come in at this point? I have another sort of thought slash question, if not. I think we have another 
question. We have a long question that I haven't looked at yet, but we, we have one more that I'll I just add. I can't see the long question. Um, we'll, we'll come to that question in a second. I wanted to ask whether in some very, very limited way, everyone is uh, uh, Walter Benjamin now. Uh, so in, 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 in the field that I work with, in the field, a I new work. hashtag, Gary. Yeah, hashtag. Exactly. We, are, we are all Walter Benny. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be. Well, you need to. You need to give something to the Twitter sphere. One of these events, don't you? Um, I, I, That's the I, I haven't been planning that one actually, but I, ha I, I have the experience of, you know, teaching international criminal law, for example, where everyone really has become a, a, a crit in relation to international criminal law. In a limited sort of way, can we say that everyone is at least employing uh, a highly simplified language of exception normalcy? So, you know, in the liberal commentariat from the Financial Times through the Guardian to the whatever, the New York Times, there is a, a language of permanent crisis, states of exception as normalcy and so on. And then in a kind of wider geohistorical sense, it's true, too, that the, the sort of liberal Atlantic hegemons, whatever you want to call them, have deployed this, this language in relation to the, the Cold War and, you know, facially and overtly in relation to the war on terror. Think of the way in which the initial bombing of Iraq was described as Operation Infinite Justice, um, but but th th that phrase was actually withdrawn quite quickly from circulation, I think, under the Bush administration. But there's been a kind of commandeering of the language that I find quite interesting here as well. That may not have been formulated exactly as a question. So, okay, I have another question, which I'll make more explicit, which is what what is the left now in relation to all this? So when we when we stand in a crowd as as protesters, I think we we must encounter so many different lefts. We in relation to crisis alone, we might encounter somebody who takes a kind of Zizekian Leninist view of crisis and says, you know, bring bring it on as much crisis as possible. It will it will eventually undermine in some catastrophic way the system. Um, and then there will be a second group of people who are agitated about Trump and want to defend the lawful order that we've, in fact, been critiquing all night. And then there's a third group, you know, us, if you like, with uh, our, the Walter Benjamins around us. And it seems to me that in some ways, when a group of leftists arrive on the scene or engage in street protests, there is, a, there is this not uncommon and not unusual in any political formation. There's this divergence of these three groups, at least in relation to the, the problem of the problem of crisis itself. This, this goes back to something Vasuki said about our strategic interventions on behalf of the the um, the Supreme Court or on, you know, in, in support of Biden. You know, these positions we're forced to take up in some strategic and sometimes slightly demeaning way. Yeah, I, I could jump in. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I do experience that constantly um, having to take up positions in bad faith, as it were, uh, and, uh, and the elections, as, you know, which I will in two weeks when I go and vote for Biden. Um, and, um, and, um, and yeah, and similarly, you know, um, when um, talking about, um, you know, the tilt of the Supreme Court by one justice when we should really be, you know, burning the whole thing down. Um, so there, there is, yeah, there is that um, 
uh, there is that, I mean, so I think that the thing of the Trump thing is that it, I think, you know, as Carly said, on the one hand, on the one hand, it has, there's a particular impact it has in terms of, you know, the tranquilizer effect of the Democratic Party of what would have happened if we had a Hillary presidency. Um, we don't have that. We have instead the provocation. I mean, you, in probably you, you, well, who knows, but, you know, there's a way in which um, the fact that the U.S., almost elected uh, Bernie Sanders um, as the Democratic Party's candidate um, is I think uh, um, is an indicator in some sense of, um, of that generative, um, um, of, of, of that sort of generative dimension of the resistance. Um, on the other hand, it does have this other, um, other sense of um, the other impact of we are fighting battles that we don't want to fight. Right? So there's a, I mean, if there, if there is a nostalgia for the, Reagan Thatcher years, it is that we, at least we prefer those battles to the, these battles where we are fighting for Biden. Uh, it, it would much uh, rather fight for Jesse Jackson to be president um, as, as what happened in the Reagan years um, than these. So in that sense, it at least shifts the domain of what the um, of the parameters of the conversation in different kinds of ways. I mean, I don't know whether one is better than the other. I mean, it's uh, it, it's they're just different. Um, it, it's just there's different terrains on which to on on which to struggle. It is true that yeah, I think. I mean, I think the generational thing for me is a huge one, just because every time I go into my Zoom classroom, I feel like um, like you were saying with uh, international criminal law, uh, Gary, that um, students are in a completely different place. And I feel like that's been happening since since Occupy, but that um, there is, uh, um, so it's a completely different place from when I go into my faculty meeting classrooms, <laughs> faculty meeting rooms, as you know, and I, and I know and often grumble about on the side, uh, that there is a, um, you know, there, there is a way in which certain faculty meetings seem like they could have been exactly the same ones that took place 10 years ago. That's not true of the classroom. Um, so, yeah, um, there was also a question. Th thanks for that, Pasuki. There was also a question about: um, Would you argue that the best weapon governments have is the population's apathy towards such policies and, and acts? And I think very much feeding into what we've already discussed. Um, I'm doing this without permission, so I hope it's okay. But Sanan, I know you've written uh, about, you know, in your, in your writing on Benjamin, you've, you've written about uh, Benjamin and in conversation with the poet Mahmoud Darwish. And there was a line from your writing on that uh, where you talked about in many places, but, but one I remember we talked about um, a disruption of the triumphant discourse of the master narrative. And so that just, I came to mind in thinking about this question and um, the ways in which apathy can be combated in order to combat that master narrative, or I guess the way it fuels that narrative in the first place. So I'm, I'm doing the tool of responding to questions with a question, but there I go. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think everywhere in a way, this is at the risk of a, a horrible generalization that I always tell my students not to do, but definitely apathy is, is, is always a tool. Apathy and despair is always the tool for uh, regimes. I mean, I, we have this in a way in the Arab world and in, in following the uprising and how a lot of the uprising transformed into civil wars and became nightmares. But then the despair was used to kind of uh, perpetuate this notion that, you know, democracy is impossible and any revolutionary gesture will be transformed into civil war. But I think when it comes to the United States, definitely, but we've seen this 
all the time. But in your question about, you know, I mean, in that amazing uh, essay, which uh, Vasuki uh, kind of read so beautifully in the Benjaminian way, I mean, you know, how does one break out of this? Uh, it's easier to locate it in poetry from my experience or in art uh, in trying to see how does one... Um, uh, cause or produce this rupture of this master narrative that so many of us internalize anyway. Otherwise, we would never always have these very same questions. And we never have this total amnesia, particularly in the United States. And to bring back the angel and, you know, Toni Morrison says how, or you said how in, in America, everyone wants to talk about the future in America so that we don't talk about the past, right? so that we continue to generate this notion of progress. And it's, it's amazing in previous weeks, even those who, because of all these events, are critiquing or trying to critique the institutional and structural racism, they still use the vocabulary of saying the American experiment. I mean, it, it's so offensive to the memory of the dead, also to bring back, to, because this is not an experiment. And to go back to one of the questions that were there, so of course, on a certain, in a certain context, on a certain level, war is a rhetorical device to advance policy. But at the expense of sounding simplistic, but wars have different effects elsewhere. That missile is going to go somewhere and destroy an entire house. And the drones kill innocent people who are just going about their daily life. So, of course, here in Rome, I mean, I always use the Rome and the barbarians. Yes, in Rome, you hear about these wars that are happening elsewhere, but because the vanquished, the defeated, they, they never appear in this larger uh, landscape. And so to go back to what you asked about, Carly, the reason why I said metastasizes, of course, Needless to say, the war on terror was taken on by Arab authoritarian regimes to completely destroy their opposition and brand anyone who is, has any aspirations as a terrorist. But uh, war was a rhetorical device, but in Iraq, uh, the depleted uranium that was dropped in 1991 is still uh, causing uh, rates of cancer that are unheard of. And every other day, child, children are born in Fallujah and elsewhere with horrible defects. So, yes, depending on where you live, if you're in the, in the metropolis of the empire, war does not, uh, does not affect you the way it does. But also, let us go back and think. I tried to, to remember the poem, but it was by an African-American poet who said, you know, I also have war every day in my, where I live. Of course, because once again, where you are in terms of the racial class hierarchy, there are wars uh, here. And there is another continuing war that has started centuries ago if one is the native colonized person. I mean, if, if one thing I learned over the many things from Benjamin is that try to think of the perspective of those who are whose lives were destroyed so that you can construct your liberal democracy. There is, there, is a, there is a price for your liberal democracy that is continuously being paid for the victims of liberal democracy at home and abroad. And also, I mean, making the connection between what empire does abroad and how empire came to be is very important. 
because the methods and the techniques are shifted back and forth, right? The colony is a laboratory and so on and so forth. We've seen with 9-11 and with the, with the war on terror how uh, society became so militarized and how all of these police departments were given all of this uh, unused or used uh, military weapons and devices to use against activists then uh, in the current moment. Sorry, I had too much coffee just. <laughs> but you, you're, you're, your timing again is absolutely excellent. You've taken us straight to eight o'clock. I think that's an important point at which to end our deliberations on this question. There's a rather excellent question going down the side of the page as well from Marie Claire. I'm really sorry we can't respond to your question, but actually I think it's more important that we read it and absorb it. So I thank you for that. And I thank the three speakers for an extraordinarily rich and engaging discussion. Um, so thank you, Gallatin at LSE. Um, and... Uh, and in particular, thank you, Carly, for organizing this event. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's gone really, really well. I just, I obviously wish it had been in a room with 150 people in, in New York or, or London, but it, it, it wasn't. And this was a very, very good second best. So well done. Well done, you. And th thank you again, everyone, for, for attending the webinar and for speaking.